Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Kayak, Priceline, Open Table, RentalCars.com. They all have something in common. They're the properties of booking holdings. It's a very tough time for the likes of these websites. But let's bring on Glenn Fogel, who's president and CEO of Booking Holdings, because they're not going away without a fight. Let's put it that way. Glenn, thank you so much for joining. Talk to us about the state of this kind of industry right now. I'm still getting, you know, very optimistic emails daily from the likes of Open Table, Priceline, and so on. But things have changed, and I'm curious as to how your various properties are uh, adapting to the change. Well, thank you for having me. And look, this is a difficult time for the travel industry, and it's been a difficult time since the beginning of the year when we first saw things happening in China. And it's, of course, gotten uh, worse throughout the world, but now people are feeling a little more positive about the future. Certainly, we're reading the news about a potential vaccine coming down the pike, and once people feel safe, they start to travel. We know that by just seeing how much our numbers have improved since uh, the April lows, where people, once they felt that it was safer in certain parts of the world, they started traveling right away. So there is absolutely hope in the future. All right, let's talk about current trends there, um, if you don't mind. I know in this in your June quarter, uh, Room Nights book tumbled 87% from the same period a year ago. Revenue fell by about 84%. What have you strong. seen... What have you seen over the last uh, several weeks and months? Well, you know, we talked about in our earnings call that we, we'd been having, um, you know, a significant improvement and we were pleased with what was going on. But there's no doubt there have been some parts of the world where there have been flare-ups and things have gotten, uh, things plateau. There's a great correlation between when a government puts down some sort of restriction or people start seeing the infection rates going up, that those people in the area start saying, hey, I'm not sure I want to travel right now. And we see that throughout the world. And I can pretty much predict if there's a problem in an area without knowing the data on the infections by just looking at our data on the people who are willing to book. Dan, I want to point out that you've foregone your salary as part of the current cost controls. What else are you doing to lower staff costs? You've said you're trying to do it as painlessly as possible. Well, look, we went through so many different things to cut costs and everything from stopping marketing for the most part to no travel of any kind, cutting out all sorts of events and including cutting my uh, salary and other senior executives and all those things because that's the first thing to do. But then what happened is we looked at our numbers and we looked at what our volumes are and we say, you know, we're going to have to do the unfortunate thing and that is cut people. And we've been through that process uh, for the last few months. Well, last week, we had to tell our people at Booking.com that we're going to have to do some cuts there, too. And it's, it's, it's so hard on the people who've done nothing wrong. It's not as though they're doing a bad job, but this virus has just been horrific for our industry. Glenn, give us your thoughts. I know it's, it might be a little bit earlier, but certainly, you know, you have, I'm guessing, some perspective here. What is your sense as to consumer behavior as it relates to traveling? Do you get a sense on the other side of this that consumer behavior will kind of go back to normal. People will go on cruise ships, the hotels, mass gatherings, that type of thing. Or are you concerned that maybe there may be a fundamental change to how uh, you know people travel? Well, I think in the big picture, I think travel will go right back to where it was 
overall. And I, I say that with great confidence because there have been tragic things in our world for a hundred years and people then went back to traveling. I mean, World War II was a devastating thing for this world. Yet, just a few years after the end of World War II, people were traveling to Europe. I am not concerned about people not willing to travel or gather. That is how human beings are. We're social. But there are some things that are going to change, I think, a little bit. And we see that already. Whereas in the past, um, not that many people said they wanted to stay in a home, what we call alternative accommodation instead of a hotel. But right now, what we have seen, we talked about in our four, in our second quarter, we saw 40% of our bookings were going for this alternative accommodation, basically going to a home, which is much higher than it had been previously because people want to stay away from a big lobby with a lot of people. Now, here's the thing. When people feel safer, they still will they'll say, hey, I'll go back to a hotel, sure. But having tried a hotel, they may say, hey, maybe we had more fun in the hotel. Maybe it's better. So I see a shift there potential. And the other really big thing is business travel. Uh, people have learned that, hey, we can do our business real well by video communications. So we don't need to take that business trip on the jet. And that will impact the airline's um, revenue significantly because, again, a lot of the profits are coming from the front of that plane with people paying those high uh, first-class or business-class fares. And the hotels, some of the big international chains that really get a lot of revenue from the business guy or woman who is traveling and they're paying the bigger rates, and that's going to hurt. Now, for us, because we do a lot more leisure than business, and actually, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, since you don't want to win this way, but this is going to help us a little bit because there's going to be more supply. And when there's more supply than there's demand, a distributor like us benefits from that. Glenn, you know, you have to have done the math on this. You have to have consultants doing, you know, various different calculations. How does it change operating margins if you now have to be way more lenient on terms for customers? So they will very likely for the longest time want to book much, much, much less in advance. So at shorter notice, they'll also want to have the ability to cancel, you know, way closer to their booking period than they ever would have been allowed to in the past. How does that change your business? Well, it helps us because our Booking.com company has always had a great percentage of its uh, hotel reservation rates to be fully cancelable. So that has always been a big selling point for us. So this just helps us that much more. Uh, of course, other people will, of course, try to adopt that too now because it is a competitive selling uh, rate. People like to have that totally flexible, freely cancelable rate, which is what Booking.com offers. And we are seeing most of our bookings are going on that on that uh, rate. It's people are saying, you know, I'm willing to take that flexible rate because I can cancel it if I need to. Glenn, give us just an update on kind of your relationship with Google right now. I know the search engine has been, uh, you know, a big part of the travel business as well in terms of driving traffic. Yeah, Google is a big player in the industry without doubt. And it's uh, certainly we've worked very well together over a very, very long time. But our 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 overall theme is that we want to have a direct relationship with our customers. We want our customers to come to us directly, not through any intermediary, whether it be a player like a Google or any other type of meta or any type of thing. We want people just when they think about travel, they type in booking.com or even more so they go to our booking.com app on the mobile uh, device. That's really the secret to a long-term success is that relationship that's so tight right. that people know they're getting better value, they come to us directly. Mm-hmm. Hey, Glenn, thanks so much for uh, joining us here. We really appreciate your thoughts and your time. Glenn Fogel, President, Chief Executive Officer of Booking Holdings.
It was a lot of excitement at the weekend. We had the PGA Championship. It was the first major tournament since the pandemic stalled the sports world. Well, the winner was 23-year-old Colin Morikawa, and he'll probably be remembered for that eagle on the 16th on Sunday that carried him really to the championship. I spoke with Colin yesterday and asked him how he just turned pro last year, and yet people are already talking about his future. I asked him if he sees a record number of majors in that future. You know, I hope so. Um, you know, there, there's no ceiling for me. I just want to keep winning. And after winning this past week, you know, there, there's obviously going to be a lot of more work that's going to be needed to put in uh, to win and to get to those, uh, you know, major number uh, of wins. Um, but, you know, for me, I just got to enjoy, I have to enjoy this one. I have to keep moving forward, learn from it. Um, but, it, you know, it gave me a taste of what it's like to be a major champion. And I love it. You know, I love being in this spot. Uh, you know, I want to be in it again. Um, so I really look forward to seeing what the majors are like, because this is what all the best players look forward to. Yes, every other event matters to me. I still want to win. I want to go out every single week and play well. Um, but I, I have that extra, you know, sense of what it feels like to, to win a major now. Speaking of which, you were FaceTiming right afterwards as you were waiting for the other players to come in. Was it your parents? What did they say? There was a lot of talking and laughing. Uh, yeah, it was them. Uh, they were just screaming. There was no talking. There was a lot of screaming. Uh, my mom had no clue how to kind of angle the camera. They were covering the camera. Uh, my brother's 17. So both my parents, you know, my mom and dad, my brother were just so excited. Um, you know, a small little story. They had a balloon flying to the yard. Uh, it was a number one balloon and that's all. They had no clue where it came from, but it was sitting there since Friday. They never touched it. Um, and I think that balloon just means a little something special uh, after this entire week finished off. Oh my gosh. I hope they ran out and <laughs> caught it before it blew away. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. You're a golden bear. You were at UCAL for the last four years, Bachelor's of uh, Business Administration, interestingly. So what would your top business ideas for the game of golf be, particularly right now? Oh my God. Um, there, there are so many, I mean, you look at the state of, of where we're at obviously with all the quarantine and COVID and, um, you know, I, I think golf being back, we're very fortunate to do what we love every single day, come out and play against the best players in the world. Um, it sucks that we have no fans, but if you look at the sport of golf, I think we're doing, uh, amazing. You know, you look at everyone, people that have never played golf, people that have played golf, but stopped playing golf, everyone, uh, no matter what their age, I think is getting into it because it is something that you can do very safely as long as, you know, you stay away from uh, large crowds. And uh, it's been really cool to see a lot of my friends pick up the game over the past couple months, uh, especially with me coming back and playing and playing pretty well. Um, so I think there's, you know, a lot of business opportunities come that, you know, that stretch of golf um, of just, you know, any type of golf, you know, whether it's recreational, country club, um, tournaments, uh, you know, whatever it is, I think someone and, and everyone is trying to do something golf related in their house because uh, I know I, I got to a point where, you know, I was almost tired of just sitting on the couch and watching TV during these past few months. Well, it's interesting. We just did a story here at Bloomberg based on data, visual data that shows that one of the top visited, you know, venues right now are golf courses around the country, obviously for those with the means. And of course, TPC Harding and the PGA Championship was the top uh, ranked watched show on Sunday or a uh, few hours of play on Sunday. So there's that to bring to your sponsors. What are you going to be telling them when they when they try and, and do a deal with you if they say that, you know, it's a... Uh, it's going to be a less watched sports from now on. How are you going to, are you well, going to play your sponsors? 
Um, well, it's great to know that this was, you know, one of the most watched things uh, for a while now. Um, it, it's cool to be in that position and obviously get the TV time. But, you know, my sponsors, Omega, Zurich, um, TaylorMade, Adidas, Therabody, um, you know, they've all been part of that group that has helped grow and, and build me to where I'm at now. I wouldn't be here without them. You know, I think everyone, my family, my coaches, my caddy, uh, my agents, everyone, you know, even my girlfriend, like everyone that I've kind of built this small group around me um, has only helped me get to where I am because without them, I wouldn't have these extra little steps and making things a little easier every single week um, just to help me out. And uh, I don't think they get enough credit. I wish they can, I could give them more credit. Um, you know, I, I wish my name had every, everyone else's name next to it um, at the end of the day, but unfortunately it is just my name. Um, but, you know, I'm very thankful for them. Um, yeah. You know, that's... Speaking of your name, I think it was Jim Nance that said that you would be one of the few golfers known for your first name in the future, which is a big, <laughs> big forecast to try and live up to. But the only other Colin I know from golf is Colin Montgomery, and he only has one L. Do you think your parents gave you the second L on purpose? I have no clue, but I love the two L's. I think two L's looks a lot more even. It looks a little better. Um, yeah, you know, it, to, to have Jim Nance say that is mind-blowing. Um, it's pretty special. Who knows, you know, what that'll turn out to be. But, you know, it, it'll be nice. Uh, hopefully people know how to pronounce my name. The starter yesterday mispronounced my last name, um, and that gave me a little laugh to start off the round for sure. That's for sure. You're a trailblazer in many, many different ways. Colin, what's your next goal? You're already number two for the FedEx standings this year. You know, my next goal is to uh, win Northern Trust. You know, that's, that's next up on the list at TPC Boston. Um, the playoffs is a three-week stretch, obviously finishing at Eastlake. And yeah, you know, if we talk about the next month, that's the goal is to win the FedEx Cup playoffs, uh, to be the last man standing and win that event. But you know, I still have two more events before that. And if I start getting ahead of myself, uh, things can go sideways. So, uh, you know, I'm going to sit back, enjoy this week for sure, and really cherish what just happened. Uh, but I really look forward to what's next. That was PGA champion Colin Morikawa sitting down chatting with our very own uh, Vonnie Quinn. So Vonnie seems like a, you know, pretty bright, you know, well-spoken young man with a, you know, a pretty uh, appreciative outlook uh, about the, the game of golf and what it's done to him and what he hopes to do going forward. Well, a couple of million dollars in a day will do that for you, maybe, yep. Paul, that's for sure. But a 23-year-old, a new name on the block, just turned pro. And it really is probably excellent for the sport because as much as we all love to watch the Brookses of the world and the Dustin Johnsons and so on, it is nice to have a young face come in and particularly, you know, Japanese American, which you don't see too often. So he's trailblazing in many senses of the word. In fact, I think it was said that he would be known by his first name as so few in golf are. You think of Tiger, you think of Rory. He might be the first Colin because Colin (laughs) Montgomery sure didn't do it. Yeah, exactly. It's in Colin Montgomery posted a nice tweet after Colin uh, Morikawa won, saying, "Finally, a Colin wins a major title." So I thought that was pretty funny. Puck, you know, having a little fun is his yeah. own expense. But boy, it's an important time for golf with all the majors coming up, the FedEx Cup. Uh, you know, everything kind of happening in a really condensed period of time. So uh, you know, golf is going to have the, the the spotlight here for uh, the next several months. There's a lot of activities really piling up here. And certainly one of the only sports actually on the go right now. I mean, obviously yeah. the NBA next week, we're going to see the playoffs. So that will be exciting. But golf is something that uh, you can definitely do on the weekend and perhaps even outside socially distanced. 
Well, as we are five or six months into this pandemic and lot various stages of lockdown and the economic impact, the discussion increasingly is moving towards that of a vaccine. When will a vaccine uh, be available? How effective will it be? Peter Coy, economic editor for Bloomberg Businessweek, joins us here with a, his story on entitled Where We Are on the Path to a Vaccine and What Comes Next. That's in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Peter, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's just start right at the top. What is your kind of number one takeaway from your story about the where we are on this uh, situation? I think where we are is uh, somewhere between total optimism and kind of uh, <laughs> the pessimism you're getting a lot from a lot of people. The point is that vac- we, we, we are going to have vaccines, plural. Uh, the only question is going to be how well they work. Okay. Um, it's not looking like we're going to have knockout vaccines where you just stop a virus dead with one shot. It's possible that it'll be something more akin to a flu vaccine where it doesn't completely stop the vaccine, uh, the, the virus. Maybe it m- eases the symptoms uh, in some people or stops it in others. And it might, you might have to uh, have uh, booster shots every year. Um, and the virus might not work as well on old people whose immune systems just aren't as strong and so that they don't get fortified as much by a, by a vaccine. Um, that's the, again, that's uh, the likelihood. Nobody knows for sure. Um, there's a lot of cool, cool science going on. And I think my, my article's mainly just trying to walk people through the awesomeness of the human immune system and the awesomeness of all the scientists who are doing what they can to bolster it. Yeah, and we had a story yesterday, Peter, about Merck, you know, taking a different approach, looking at the longer term while several other companies are trying to, you know, get something out there as fast as possible. And and the received wisdom is that it normally takes four years to develop anything like this. What do you make of the news today that Russia says it has a vaccine? Well, uh, they, they just barely began phase three trials on this, so they really can't say with any certainty if it is safe and effective, even though that's what Vladimir Putin argued today, uh, I would say it's, it's premature to be, you know, so-called registering a vaccine at this early stage. And I hope that Donald Trump is not going to take the cue from Putin and try to do a similar thing in the United States, because it it's, it's not fair to the scientists who are working on the vaccine are certainly not fair to the general public to expose them to uh, vaccine whose safety and efficacy is not completely determined. So, Peter, I know, you know, for a lot of these big pharma companies, vaccines has not been a real business line for them over the years. So I'm wondering here, a lot of resources from a lot of big pharma, a lot of biotech leaders are focused on this. Is there coordination between these companies or are they each in their own lane pursuing their own tests and their own product? It's more the latter. I mean, I think on a fundamental science point of view, there is still sharing, which is a positive. But the, the nationalism that you're seeing from the governments is sort of driving people apart. And as you said, each in its own lane. Uh, the ideal would be some sort of a patent pooling approach where we just all agree, okay, if it's a patent that's necessary for the development of a COVID-19 vaccine, It'll just be placed into a pool where everybody can share it. The royalties are uh, split 
on some equitable basis, and that would move the science forward much faster. But um, it's the United States, among other countries, has not gone along with proposals for patent pooling. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. As much as it seems to be the obvious thing for all rational thinking people to do, then, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if Russia would go along with it, if China would go along with it, if the no. U.S. would go along with it. No. Peter, wh- where should we be looking for the, the first batch of potential vaccines? Well, so as my article lays out, and there's an accompanying graphic, which I worked on with Sean Hasto, um, you sort of have three broad categories of, of vaccines. One is the whole pathogen approach, which is a traditional, uh, you know, like a polio vaccine, where it's either a killed or a weakened virus, the actual virus that gets injected into your body and it stimulates the immune system. And then the, the other kinds, most of what's being worked on is new stuff that really is not as well tested. One is where you actually give the body sort of a piece of the virus, some kind of subunit, maybe a protein or something, and have the see how the body reacts to that. And then the third is really cool. You actually give the body some of the nucleic acid from the virus, and the body itself manufactures portions of the virus, not the whole virus, but portions that stimulating the immune system. So in effect, you turn your own body into a a vaccine production factory. I mean, it's just amazing what scientists are up to today. And, and I really, obviously, you got to wish them well. So well, you got to because you want to yeah. be a participant at some point, right? Exactly. So, Peter, one of the things that's also kind of a roadblock out there that we've talked about before is production and distribution. Let's say that one or more vaccines come onto the market sometime late this year or early, mid-next year. Is the industry set up to produce and distribute? Well, one of the things about that latter class I just mentioned, the nucleic acid vaccines, is that the production aspect is pretty easy. Um, and that's one of the big pluses in, in that column. Because again, the body itself is <laughs> producing the vaccines for you. The the other two kinds do require more manufacturing. Um, I have something in my article saying, you know, given the fact that the incredible damage that the vaccine is doing to the world economy, you could spend $375 billion to accelerate the introduction of a vaccine by a single month, and it would be worthwhile from the point of view of society as a whole. So it makes sense to overbuild capacity for factories, for example, um, build factories for vaccines that may not get approved just to cover your bets. And a little bit of that's going on, thanks to the uh, Gates Foundation and, and some you know, national efforts, but not enough. And we could afford even more spending on vaccines and vaccine production than we're doing right now. I said we, I mean the world. Peter, we do have to leave it there, but I would like to recommend that everybody read this article. It's in the current and new edition of Business Week, Bloomberg Business Week, and of course, uh, it's Peter Coy, so it's always very thoughtful. It's always very uh, easy to understand, Paul, for those of us yep. who may not be completely fluent in vaccine language or other types of language. Well, as investors start to lay some bets that there may be some light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic, and given the stimulus that we've seen coming out of Congress, the Fed 
easing of rates and injecting liquidity in the marketplace. One of the areas that may benefit going forward is the high-yield bond market. And there's no one better to chat about that market than Andrew Feltis, co-director of Global High Yield at Amundi Pioneer, located at Durham Bulls Athletic Park in Durham, North Carolina. Andrew, thanks so much. You have one of the, my favorite offices to visit there. I can catch a game sometimes with the Durham Bulls. <laughs> Talk to us about the high-yield market here. How much risk are you guys thinking about here as we try to process kind of what the Fed's been doing and what Congress is trying to do in terms of stimulus? Well, we've had an enormous rally in the market. At the end of March, uh, we were basically at cyclical wides, uh, but we've come into where valuations are about average at this point. Now, the, the backdrop, as you point out, is that the Fed is continuing to push money into the system. Uh, central banks around the world are pushing that money into the system. Government bonds really don't offer much yield. So we see continued demand. Uh, technicals are very strong. Uh, but easy money's probably been made. Uh, so spreads are about average relative to the long term. Uh, we expect to see defaults rise very quickly. But this is an environment where you have to be focused much more on the individual trees, not the forest. Make sure you have good security selection to make sure you avoid those coming defaults. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, but also I'm sure for some credit managers, you know, they haven't gotten involved yet and there will be a time down the road where they're hoping that, you know, all of the other shoes will drop, right, Andy? Yeah, well, the, the, that's a lot of that's already in the price. And so I think you're going to have defaults spike up this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're expecting to see defaults around 10%, but the market's really looking ahead. And the question's going to be, you know, not what happens in 2020, but what happens in 2021. And so if we do hit bumps along the way, so if the, the recovery in the COVID crisis is less than we expect in 2021, uh, or we see a pullback as far as Fed actions or other central banks, uh, weakness as far as central government spending and fiscal stimulus, that could put pressure uh, in the market. Andy, but, can I just push you on that? You say a lot of it's baked into the price, but credit is rallying and there's huge demand and bankruptcies are piling up. Should it not not be selling off? So it's really about what your average expectation is. So right now, spreads in the high-yield market are just a little bit north of 5% over Treasury. So it is a relative bet compared to Treasuries. But 5% really builds in about a 5% default rate uh, on average. Now, very rarely are you at a 5% default rate. You're either at 10, and that's the environment we're in right now at a very high level, or you're at very low levels, 2 to 3%. So if you think uh, ultimately we will cover three, four years out, the average default rate is really going to be driven by what happens in 2021 until lesser extent 2022. So we're looking beyond the next six months and really trying to figure out what happens in 2021. All right. So, Andy, given those high-end default rates that you just mentioned, what are some of the sectors that you guys at Mundi Pioneer are taking a look at these days? So, you know, first thing I would note is that the very safe parts of the high-yield market are really tightly priced. Okay. Uh, we saw a, a, a double-D, very high-quality deal price, 50 basis points uh, back of investment grade. So you really, a lot of people have discovered this trade. And the sectors that are benefiting from the pandemic, so cable companies, uh, provider of broadband services, you know, people who provide services yep. for people to work from home, all that's really priced in, and, and that is relatively tight. There's not a lot of margin for error. So you either have to go down in credit quality, and we see single Bs as an opportunity to, to sort through and find opportunities, but also in some of the sectors that have been thrown out. Now, retail, 
and energy companies that we think have secular challenges. Uh, and the pandemic is just accelerating that to a certain amount. But there are some babies with the bathwater. And we always look at uh, the pipeline sector within energy. It's within the energy sector, but they're not driven by the price of oil or the price of gas. They just need to transport it. It's a very highly regulated business, so it's very predictable as far as what those cash flows are. But investors aren't giving them credit for that. Uh, when we think about the sectors that are impacted by the pandemic, so think anything with travel, anything where people have to, to get together, like casinos or gaming, that's an area that you have to, to go name by name. Uh, and so uh, uh, back in March and April, casinos were very dislocated. Now that's less of uh, an opportunity. Airlines, though, continue to be very dislocated, and particularly higher quality airlines, we see opportunity within that space. But you really have to dig through the financials, understanding how much liquidity these companies have, uh, no pun intended, how much runway they have before uh, we see recovery. Briefly, Andy, because we're pretty out of time, but do you see any risks building because of this? Like you say, high yield is is very tightly priced. Is it properly priced? Is is it, you know, exposing the market to risks? So we're priced in line with the long-term averages. Uh, That's why I focus so much on security selection. I think the biggest uh, event we have to worry about is the election, uh, because that could put pressure on both fiscal and monetary stimulus and what the market expects from that. And if the market gets a little scared, you know, we're not giving this away anymore. And so that creates some downside risk. So it's not a one-way bet like it was back at the beginning of April. You really have to consider the, the political environment, but also what you're buying. Andy, thank you. Wish we had uh, double or triple the time, but of course that's always the way. Andrew Feltus is co-director of Global High Yield at Amundi Pioneer, Amundi Pioneer with $85 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.